Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. So far in the podcast, we've seen a more than slight predominance towards male guests and physicians featured weekly, and although I haven't heard any complaints, I know many of you are probably itching for more exposure to surgical disciplines. Well, if that's you, I'm sure you'll appreciate our featured guest on this episode. Dr. Nadia LaHare is a fellow in trauma surgery, currently working at Charlotte McGregor Johannesburg Academic Hospital. A self-described Barrow baby, she completed her junior years in and around Chris Harney Barragwanath Academic Hospital before completing her five years of general surgery registrar time. As I mentioned, she is now a consultant surgeon and a fellow in trauma surgery and nearing the end of her training towards the speciality. I sat down with Dr. Nadia to ask her about her path in medicine, why she chose to specialize in trauma surgery, and how the realities of working in trauma compare to the often glamorized depictions we see on TV and in films. With this week marking the occasion of Women's Day in South Africa, we also diverted down a brief but frank discussion about the experiences of women working and learning in medicine. It's sure to provide much food for thought, and I hope you enjoy listening and learning in this week's episode. Without further ado, here is Dr. Nadia Lahey. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, Dr. Nadia Lahey. Yes. <laughs> it's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for giving us um, some of your valuable time. Um, with all of our guests to mm -hmm. set the stage and introduce you to our audience, I'd like to ask you about where you graduated medical school and I believe that you did games, so tell me about that. And then when you did your internship and, and how that went. Cool. So I um, did the scenic route to medicine. Uh, started off with a BAC. I'll be very, very honest. I did fail my first year of BAC. Um, the only subject I remember passing was maths and stats. And the other, physics, chem, bio, failed it by a very, very small margin. So anyway, my... First year BSc was the best two years of my life from the first time. Uh, got through the BSc, did a BSc honours in um, anatomy, and uh, all the time trying to apply for medicine, applying everywhere, not really getting anywhere. And eventually in my honours year, I got into the GEM program. Because um, I'm older, that was a while back when they were still interviewing you before you got accepted. Oh, wow. Yeah, so was I, there an entrance exam? We did that normal, um, what was that, consortium exam. It's not the exam they have now. So mm -hmm. just that normal consortium exam that even the matriculants write. So we just did that. Um, and you could have done, that time, you could have done any degree to get in. So we, I remember having people that had done a BCom in my class. Wow. Um, had an interview which was very interesting, I might add. How, how so? <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> how so? So anyway... Um, I had a part-time job as well while I was doing my BSc Honours and I was waiting to hear about medicine, waiting and waiting. And you know, as with everything in life, you always think there's a, um, a sign out there. Mm -hmm. uh, the part-time job I had was um, cashier at a women's clothing store. So obviously there's women everywhere and there will be a woman that decides to faint. So anyway, um, when you think of when you tell people you want to study medicine, they always think you are studying medicine. So this woman faints and they call me. And I'm like, um, 
I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical student, but anyway, I go and yes. help. Yes. And this random person comes out of nowhere and she says, I'm a fifth year medical student and pushes me out of the way and she like helps um, the security guard that fainted. And I looked at this girl and I'm like, just wait, one day I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. Did you feel really offended by it? I did. Yeah. I was very offended by it. And um, unfortunately, later that day, I had gotten two letters from the university. One, a very big envelope, which one assumes is a good news. Good news. And then one small little envelope, which one thinks is bad news. Which did you open first? <laughs> Good news, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I go to the good news one, and it was my results from my um, honours here. So I'm like, okay, these are pretty good. Yes. Um, let's go for a small one. And the small one was a rejection letter. From Vits, both from of Vits, from Vits. Yeah. for medicine. And I was shocked. Oh, and I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be that fifth year. I was bleak. And then the very next day, um, on my way to work again, I get a phone call to say, um, you have an interview today mm. at 12. The next day? The next day. The next day. So I'm like, am I dreaming? What's going on? Anyway, I ask the person that phones me, are you sure it's me? And they're like, yes. And um, because I spell my name very different to everyone else, I'm like, please spell my name. I spelled it correctly. Wow. I'm like, what's my student number? <laughs> And they gave me everything, and I'm like, okay, when for the interview, I tell you, it was the longest 30 minutes of my life to get to that interview. How did you feel at the end of the interview? Did you feel like it had gone really well? Um, I'm a person that's, um, you know, your parents always tell you when you're young not to back answer your elders. But I found myself kind of doing that in the interview because I got asked really stupid questions, to be honest. Um, oh. I got asked, how are you going to be a mother, woman, and a doctor? And my, as part of your interview? As part of my interview. And um, my response to that was, how are men, fathers, husbands, and doctors? Hmm. And as that words just came out my mouth, I was like, oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. That sounds very rude. And then I was asked, um, like, can you afford it? I was asked, at that time I was doing, um, I had finished my honours in anatomy and obviously um, as a backup plan, you know, you apply for masters and all of that. Um, I could get an associate lecturer post and it was like, I was asked, why do you want to be a student when you can be a lecturer mm. and get paid, you know, get a salary next year? And I asked, who would I be lecturing? Did you feel like the questions were to try and discourage you or were they genuinely trying to find out if you had thought about the way forward and different options? Uh, I think it was to discourage. It, it just came across, it came across very negative. That was my worry. It's like, I don't know, you're trying to weed me out uh, because why? Like it's got nothing to do. Like I was, I had called people that had interviews before me and all they were asked is why you want to do it. Mm. And I had that answer prepared. <laughs> I had it prepared, but I never got asked it. And, and, and deeper than, <laughs> I want to help people. <laughs> yes, much deeper than. And I never got asked it. I, instead, I'm like, get all these curveballs. I told the person, they asked me, um, like, who am I going to be lecturing? They're like, no, medical students. So I'm like, I'm good enough to teach them, but not good enough to be one of them. Wow. This doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So I was like, that's why... I, I wasn't, I'm like, you know, every time this words just come out of my mouth and I'm like, maybe you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> then at the end with any interview, 
they ask you, do you have any questions? And I think a logical person would say no. But no, Nadia <laughs> says, yes, I do have <laughs> a question for you. Do you remember what any of them were? <laughs> I asked the question yeah. and um, they're like, sure, you can ask us anything. And I'm like, well, I got a rejection letter from you guys yesterday. And now an interview, yes. what's going on? Yes. And um, all I got was, it's a mistake. And I'm like, you guys are mm, you a tertiary educational institute. How do you make such a mistake? Yeah. Like you printed out a whole letter, put it in an envelope and sent it out. Yes. How do you make a mistake? Anyway, I, so I, after that interview, clearly I was bleak and I left. And then um, I'm walking out. Uh, my dad was there. I sat in the car with him, explaining to him that I think I messed up the interview, you know, mm. pretty bleak. And then I get a phone call to say, um, could you come back to my office? And I'll tell you how I remember this. It was the 15th of December because the next day is a public holiday. Yes. And they're like, can you please come back to the office? And I'm like, um, okay, sure. And I walk in and the lady tells me, please sit down. And being this um, stubborn person I am, I'm like, do I have to sit down? She's like, no, please sit down. I'm like, do I need to sit down? <laughs> she's yeah. like, Nadia, just sit down. <laughs> so I sit down on the edge of the chair and she's like... Um, we're pleased to tell you that after your interview, um, you did really well, and we're going to give you a post. Oh, amazing. I swear to you, I got up, I went behind the desk, and I hugged this lady. Oh, and I man. think she, like the blood flow to her face just disappeared. And I was like, um, thank you. And yes. I said to her, um, please, can I have this in writing? Because tomorrow's <laughs> a public holiday, and I will pay the money to secure the place, but I want this in writing. Wow. So, yeah, then I got through the game program, and it was... I think very different being a gamed in medicine because yes. your peers are younger than you. Um, you have a little bit more life experience. You're more matured. And you definitely know this is what you want. Whereas yes. the other guys are still figuring it out. What age... So after all that roller coaster, what age were you when you started GIMP? And what year would you have gone <laughs> into? Because not everyone yeah. knows what GIMP is. We've got listeners in other medical yeah. schools and other locations. So GIMP is the Graduate Entrance Medicine mm -hmm. Program. And typically now you enter into third year medicine. Uh, was it the same then? Yes, it's the same. You Third year medicine, but you would start... Um, the, when I did it, we started six weeks before the actual third years. Okay. We, we would call them the mainstream guys, yes. and we were the GIMPs. I know Vitz hates yes. the whole <laughs> distinction between mainstream and GIMP, but it is helpful because yes. there are people who have been prepared from the age of 18 exactly. who are going to be medics, yeah. medical students. And, I mean, um, at that stage, they were accepting people that um, had done BCom, had no um, medical background. Now I know you need to have done some anatomy and physiology. Yes. It's very different now. Then you could have come without that. Wow. And, Hence um, the six weeks. Yes, too. and the six weeks before, we essentially had a six weeks crash course of second year wow. medicine where we did anatomy, physiology, um, mole med, I think, as well, in six weeks, you know. Wow. So, um, and then we started with the mainstream guys, and you could really see the difference because we had six weeks together as the graduates. We kind of grouped ourselves together, but with time, we socialized with everyone <laughs> we got through it together i think you that's the one thing about medicine is that you cannot do it by yourself yes. you need 
a community to get through it. So having gone a slightly longer, you call it the scenic, scenic route, route. <laughs> through, uh, through to medicine, do you think that those years were helpful in preparing you for medicine? Do you think you were better prepared to be a doctor having done that journey than somebody who's made the decision at 17 that this is what they want to do and they go straight in? So I must say, I had lots of um, discussions with my peers at that stage, and some didn't actually know that they wanted to do medicine. Some did it because um, all their parents were doctors, you know, so they weren't really sure, but they were doing it, and they were doing well, which uh, kudos to them. Um, the graduates, we knew this is what we wanted. We worked harder to get through it. Um, I think it prepared me better in that I had life experience and that I knew this is what I wanted to do, you know, and I sucked up all the calls, did everything to get through it because this is what I wanted to do. Um, and having, I think the guys that um, weren't too sure, because subsequent to that day, I've, I've seen some of my colleagues that have left medicine and um, gone into the other uh, parts of medicine in management, you know, which mm. we also need. Yes. Uh, but one thing that medicine doesn't give you, we don't have that business mind. We're not educated in your six years or four years of medicine. There is no business courses or finance courses. We don't get that. And it's nice to have someone that has done their internship, so they do have the clinical experience, and they do realize, you know what, um, I don't want to be a clinician, but um, I could help in other ways to make the system better. So it's nice to see um, that there are those people in the class too, as yes. opposed to the whole lot of graduates that know, no, I've been through this, um, this is now what I want. Do you think working in retail has made you a better people person, a better doctor? Patience, patience, <laughs> patience, patience. Women clothing <laughs> and dealing with women, I think it taught you a lot of patience. Um, also how to deal with a lot of different personalities because yes. you get difficult people that want to return a thing when they want it, you know, and you oh, can wow. clearly see that it's worn because it smells like washing powder or their perfume. And um, you learn how to deal with that, and you have, you've extrapolated that to medicine. You get difficult patients, you get easy patients. Very good. Um, and I think in both fields, you don't get that uh, those thank yous. Thank you from a patient, or thank you from... Uh, when, you, when you help someone as a shop assistant, I don't know if you ever said thank you to the shop assistant. Wow. You know? Yeah. Uh, now, I've learned when... Um, before I was a shopper assistant, I would um, take the clothes off the rack and be like, oh, just put it back wherever, because it's their job, you know? Correct. Now I don't. Now yeah. I'll fold it and put it back. So you, you learn some characteristics or qualities that would make you a better person, and you'll also be exposed to qualities that you don't want. Very good. So I want to circle back again. <laughs> okay. You've now gotten into medical school. You've graduated from medical school. Where did you do your internship? Okay, so um, I'm a Barra baby. <laughs> Barra was my only choice. I wanted it. Uh, when you got exposed to it in medical school, that one day a week, uh, I think in your third and fourth years, and then more often in your clinical years, I wanted Barra. So I did my internship in Barra. And I think to me, it was the best decision I've ever made. Um, really, really prepares you well. I... Uh, and you don't actually know how well it prepares you until you go and do your commissary. So I did my community service at um, Bekim Langini Hospital. Okay. Back then it was called Jabulani Hospital, which is basically like, I think, about 15 kilometers from Barra. 
So not too far, it's not in the peripheries, it's not in the bushes somewhere, you know, it's pretty close to an academic institute. And I remember my one call, the very first call I did, um, it was putting in an ICD that um, somebody else didn't put in correctly, intubating an organophosphate, trying to extract a retained placenta all in one night, and it felt like I had done my two years of internship in that one um, call. Wow. And I was like, you know what? I made a good decision. Yes. And good exposure, good, good training, exposure. good preparation. Uh, you think uh, when you, you know, you're so used to as an intern having the ridge to go to or a consultant to go to and um, you're kind of safe that way. But when you do your community service, wherever you go, you're generally by yourself, you know, and um, you don't have that, can I call this person? And somehow, miraculously, that confidence comes and you do what needs to be done in that time and for the best for your patient. I think the important underlying lesson from that for all junior doctors and medical students listening is get your hands dirty and get involved early Most on. Most definitely. I think your internship is your training years, so you're allowed to make mistakes. You learn more from your mistakes than what you do when the things go right. Uh, get confident in doing those procedures, intubating, CVPs, ICDs, you know, because you don't know where you're going to end up. And if you're confident in that, also the other thing about internship, besides learning and trying to be uh, a better doctor, it's about networking. You make friends in all the fields because no matter where I was, I was 11 kilometers away, but I had made friends with the surgical registrars with everyone, and I could phone them and get advice from them. So make those friends, find someone that you can trust, that when you're a little bit stuck, it's just a phone call away, because they might not be able to come and help you, but they can give you advice over the phone. Very good, very wise advice. Okay, so now you are a fellow in trauma surgery. Yes. Tell us, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. What is your scope? What are some of the things you see on your day-to-day? -day? I'll let you take the lead in, <laughs> okay. in selling trauma surgery to us. Most definitely. So, um, sure. Uh, you first have to finish general surgery um, to get through to trauma surgery. And this is the beautiful thing about trauma surgery is that um, it's very versatile and it's a variety of pathology that you see. So besides being um, your operative techniques where one minute you're operating in the neck and then you're operating in the chest and then it's an, an abdomen or a femoral artery repair, you know, it's, it's quite varied. So it's not this mundane same thing over and over you never know so that's what I like about it is that you never know what's coming that constant adrenaline rush the other thing is you're a little bit of a detective hey because um, uh, we always say that stab wounds are a little bit more predictive uh, as to where they go mm. but gunshot wounds um, bullets do some weird things whether it's in an abdomen or a chest it ricochets over everything so you need to put the puzzle pieces together be a detective to see is this where it go? There's a potential injury there, so that you don't miss things, you know? And I think that's what keeps it interesting, is that you're constantly stimulated. You're constantly stimulated, and it's not the same things all the time. This is what I love the most about it. Your um, surgical skills, your skills to get confident in ICDs, CVPs, intubation, you do that for almost every patient, those unstable patients you come. And the m most important thing, I think about um, a trauma surgeon, and you'll see them, is that um, they're the most calmest person in the room. Wow. When blood is going around and alarms are beeping and everybody is panic, 
stay the calm person, you take a breath and you, there's a protocol, there's a way to do things, um, ATLS, and you do that and you will solve your problems. And I think for me that's something you can extrapolate to life. When everything feels like it's crumbling down, you take a breath and then you deal, it, deal with it step by step. Is that calmness um, all down to personality traits or do you think it is something that comes with training? And if it's training, um, when do you develop that? I mean, as an intern, mm -hmm. you can imagine freaking out. When did you develop that calmness? So I think it's, it's a little bit of both, right? It, it, it does come with training because the more you see, the more you know, the more you are able to do. So it definitely does come with an um, experience. But we teach you, as a medical student, as an intern, we teach you approaches to stuff. So that's technically what uh, trauma is. It's an approach to something. And because you know the approach, that's what makes you calm. You know, you know I need to start. We're very simple trauma surgeons. We just know our alphabets A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> you know, just start at A and work your way. And such is life. There's always a starting point and there's an ending point. And yes. if you just do that, that's what will enable you to remain calm. Wow. Already I'm getting excited <laughs> when you describe trauma surgery like that. I'm a very excitable person, so I don't know that I could handle all of the pressure and stress that you're describing, especially with all that variety. Um, what are some of the coping techniques that one needs to develop? Do you have any? I mean, after a busy day, do you feel completely wired? Uh, or do you feel exhausted? How do you feel after treating such a variety of pathologies? So I, I must say, um, as time went on, uh, one would think that um, as a consultant you are less stressed, you know, after a call. So we still do on-site calls. We're very involved because it is life or death situation. So we're never going to leave our registrars alone. Mm. We're always there, okay? And I do feel, I'm comparing it to my reg time and internship years. Uh, it might be a, a little bit that I'm a little bit older now but I am more tired after a call. And I think it's more of a physical and mental tiredness because remember as a reg or as an intern, you always have someone to call. You're the consultant now. So they the one, you are the one you, they're calling. So I think that makes you feel a little bit more tired. But also we are, because you're always on site with your registrar, we're constantly teaching, whether it's in the resource area, whether it's when you're operating. So you, it is a, it's a physically demanding job, right? We're very busy. We have our quiet nights, and as with everything in medicine, you never say the Q words, so never say it's going to be quiet. But we do have those nights, and you do have those busy nights where there's multiple patients you're operating on, and for me, what makes, yes, you are tired physically because, I mean, who can... We can't always do a 24-hour shift and you can't always be on your feet for 24 hours. But you feel less tired and you feel uh, more relieved when after you've operated on that patient and you continue your recess in ICU and you see them getting better. Yes. And then I know, you know what, I've accomplished what I needed to. And then I go home feeling, you know, I made a difference. And then for some reason, you're no longer so tired. Mm -hmm. So I imagine one of the hardest things to do is because you care so passionately about your patients, one of the hardest things to do is to delegate the responsibility <laughs> to people who you might feel would do less of a good job than you. Not to say they do a bad job, but because of your training, because of your experience, to hand something to an intern or a registrar who you know is still learning the ropes, 
What's it like to be on the other side and having to delegate that responsibility and trust somebody with someone's care? Uh, in surgery, we do have a, a phrase that says, trust no one but yourself. And you never trust anyone and you always do things yourself. But as I said before in medicine, it's very much a team sport. Eh? You cannot do everything by yourself. So you have to delegate. So as much as I would like to do everything by myself so that I know it gets done properly, I need to have faith in my registrar, okay? Because they're also learning. And someone had to let go of the ropes too with me to enable me to learn. So I think of it that way and that makes it more easier for me to delegate, to say, if I don't delegate this to the registrar and trust and have faith that they can do it, I am robbing them of a learning experience. And this is how I'm like, I need to give this to you so that you can learn from it or I teach you from it. Whether it goes right or wrong, you will learn from it. And that's how it makes it a little bit easier. I must say, in the beginning, the first few months of being a, a consultant, it was very hard to let go because you were in that registrar, you know, I must do this, I must do this. It was very hard in the beginning. But then when you see that you're robbing someone else of another learning opportunity by not delegating, you then realize there's a bigger picture. Thank you so much for that because <laughs> what I'd like our audience to hear and take note of is that for us, if we're chasing procedures and we get to do things, we need to recognize that that is a privilege to do those things under supervision and not to shrink back when somebody says, hey, come do this, because they are extending themselves, extending the opportunity to someone for their training. So it's so good to hear a consultant say, you know, I want to do everything, but I recognize that I need to help other people to learn and grow. So that's wonderful. No, most definitely, because I mean, best time to learn is when there's someone there that can correct your mistakes. You don't want to be learning this by yourself. Yes, okay. as you as you described, yeah. as a, a, an MO and ComServe, like having yeah. to do so much. Because it takes time. The f uh, you're not going to get it on the first time. You need time to build your own confidence in it. And you have to have that opportunity and someone has to give it to you. Wonderful. Dr. Leia, um, you mentioned a path to trauma surgery where you said you had to do general surgery first. Was that a four-year reg post in general surgery? I wish. Five years. Five years. <laughs> five so five years. years um, th when did you write your primaries? Okay. So I, um, I did my ComServe and because I'm a Barra baby, I did six months of MO time in um, surgery at Barra. Um, at that time, there wasn't many people applying for surgery. Surgery has become very common right now because um, we've gotten a lot of uh, people applying which is amazing. Like, it's very nice to see that people are more keen. Everyone is like deterred from it because of a lifestyle choice. But I mean, it is what you make of it. So after six months of uh, MO time, I got a reg post. Reg post, um, to apply for um, a registrar post, you must have had primaries. So you must write primaries. It is getting much more competitive. I've, um, I was the registrar representative while I was a reg. So I had sat in on interviews. Uh, for future registrars and because it's so competitive people are now applying with intermediate exams Oh wow! Okay, so that you obviously look better on your CV as opposed to someone that doesn't so it and is more MO time or also six months um, some have more some have less some have more exams some has more research so you can see all universities are pushing research so the bare minimum that you should have is um, to apply is um, your primaries. You must have an ATLS course, very, very, very good course to attend, and some sort of research. 
That's the bare minimum. And I can tell you there's people coming with um, PhDs, multiple publications, uh -huh. with intermediate exams. So um, it's, you have to sell yourself. And typically how many um, posts would there be on one intake and how many people would be applying for those posts? So it's very dependent on how many people have written the exam, right? So there's two final exams, um, there's two semesters, uh, in like Feb, March is the one and July, August is the second one. Depends how many people write, how much reach time they have left, that's how posts open. Okay. okay so it's very controlled. Um, the very last, I think I was the reg rep until 2020. So uh, the last one I attended was about five posts and 30 people interviewing. Okay. So it's quite competitive. Yeah. Okay? Um, MO time, cutting time, it was varied amongst some people six months, some people two years. Very varied. So again, you must have the bare minimum, but the more added you have, again, puts you higher up on the list. Uh, so with us, um, you do your primary, that's just to get in. You have to, at the VIT circuit, um, the intermediate exam is, should be done during your junior time. So our surgical um, registrar time is separated between junior and senior time. So junior time is two years, and then senior time. Um, what I like about our um, program is that we get re-interviewed to be senior registrars. Oh, wow. You don't just become a senior registrar. Yeah. So again, there's another qualification process. So you must have done two years of your reg time, you must have had your protocol for your MMED approved, and you must have passed your intermediate exams. You are then interviewed by all the big profs, very, very, very um, uh, nerve-wracking interview to go in a room full of the big profs, and you get interviewed, and if everybody's happy, you then get promoted to the senior post, then you become a senior reg. And then obviously you then have to plan when you write your finals, which is the big one. So you said that uh, even though it's a very nerve-wracking exam <laughs> in front of all the profs, uh, you said that you like it. So why do you like that step, that bridge between junior and senior? I think uh, th there's a big difference between being a junior registrar and a senior registrar. You take a lot more responsibility as a senior registrar. And at the end of the day, you're in a unit, right? And as the consultants run the unit, you should emulate that. Because at the end of the day, when you pass that exam, you're going to be a consultant. So if you cannot run a unit and you cannot have the ability to delegate and do what you need to do and delegate and trust other people, then are you really ready to be a consultant? Wow. You see, so that's what I think. And um, a lot of interviews, I think, um, you, it's much more easier to sell yourself when you're talking than on paper. Some of us cannot sell ourselves very well on paper but we sell ourselves when we talk. And you, there's a thin line in surgery between confidence and arrogance, right? Mm. And you need to find that line. To become that senior registrar, also you need to know what I can manage by myself when I do need to call someone. You need to know the difference. And that all comes with experience, with maturity. Um, I remembered one of my uh, junior rotations was in Klagstorp, very far from here. And um, I... We did this in appendix for four quadrant contamination, washed him out, did his appendectomy. He stayed for about, I think, a week or so in hospital and went home. And then I came back to Barra and did a registrar rotation there and had the exact same patient and he went for multiple relooks. And I thought... Same type of patient or the same, same guy? Same type of okay. patient. Yeah. 
perfed appendix, four wow. pattern contamination. He had planned relooks for washout again, had multiple more relooks for washout. And I thought to myself, how did I not plan a relook for that patient in Gladstorp? Mm -hmm. Now, ignorance is bliss. When you don't know about something, um, you never anticipate it, you never plan for it. Major difference between a junior registrar and senior registrar and a consultant. Yes. You know, it's about as you get more experience, you anticipate complications and you plan ahead. But when you're junior, you can rattle off the complications because you've studied it, but you don't anticipate and you don't plan for it. Very good. So my next question is, what does a typical work week look like for you? How much of your time is spent in theatre? How much of it is on the floor, in the pits? How much of it is in the wards? So um, we have an elective list on Mondays. I do the elective list every Monday. Uh, we do pretty cool cases, so at least an eight to four day there. Um, then every other day is we do consultant ward rounds. Um, so we have uh, our readers round from about seven. We start rounding at eight, and we it's a teaching. Every ward round in our unit is a teaching ward round. So um, our ward rounds do take long, but they are teaching and it's bedside teaching. And I'm not sure about you, but I think even as an intern, I learned more at the bedside than what I learned studying in my room, you know. Um, then afterwards, we have, like, for example, Tuesdays, our rounds would start later because we have Eminem on a Tuesday. On a Wednesday, we have um, an academic day. So we have a grand ward round that's at around about 11 o'clock. Okay. On a Thursday, we have teaching again for our registrars where they prepare a presentation. We have a journal club as well. And then Fridays is our clinic days. So, I mean, it's, um, you have sometimes early days, sometimes late days. Trauma is unpredictive. Um, when you throw in calls there, then um, that obviously changes things because then you're there for the whole 24 hours. Um, yeah, it's, you have your early days, you have your late days, but reasonably chilled. <laughs> and then, sorry, I forgot to talk about your trauma surgery specific subspect training. We spoke about the five years of being a, a surgical yes. reg. Um, is there any way that one can go just into trauma surgery or does everyone have to do general surgery? No, you surgery? have to do general surgery first. So trauma surgery is a fellowship. So you have to be a general surgeon. And then it's the same process. You, get, um, you have to apply for it. You get interviewed for it. And then you do a trauma fellowship. So I'm currently in my trauma fellowship. It is two years. Okay, and after two years, again, there's a MCQ exam and an oral. And it's a trauma and critical care fellowship. So that's how we are exposed to ICU training. I mean, with surgical reg time, your intermediate exams already got some critical care in there. So we're exposed throughout. Um, and it's, it's to install the principles of pre-operative management, intraoperative management, and post-operative management. So cheers is not a long time compared to five years of Jensen. I'm sure it just flies by. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, but, you know, I think it's even quicker when you're doing what you love. Yes. I, I was just getting through that five-year road to get to trauma surgery. So when did the big bites that you decided trauma surgery was what you wanted to do? <laughs> this is so strange. I remember in um, medical school you had to do electives, right? And I did an elective in peds, I think it was third or fourth year, because I thought I wanted to do peds. Did not like it. Then I said I wanted to do medicine. Uh, did my elective in medicine, did not like it. And uh, I then spent some time in trauma as a student and I'm like, no, this isn't really what I want to do. And again, it goes back to the calmness. I was an intern in anesthetics at Barra and the prof that time um, was doing a stab heart. Wow. And 
myself and two other anesthetists were pushing blood in this patient and the prof was the calmest person in the room oh. just suturing a beating heart so calm and I looked at this man and I'm like this is what I want to be I want to be that person because when when there's one person calm in the room that calmness just goes to everybody else and it makes us a life-threatening situation much more manageable for everyone else. It's a bit senseless to have everyone freaking out and throwing tantrums and raising voices because then nothing really, you have no closed loop communication, nothing is really actually communicated because everyone is so anxious and stressed out. But when I seen that, how his calmness had translated to everybody else in that theater that night, I was, it solidified that trauma surgery was what I wanted to be and I emulate every time I'm in theater with an unstable patient, that I am like that. So if somebody was listening to this podcast and they wanted to come up with a decision algorithm that would take them down to surgery, um, what would some of the features of the, that person be? What kind of personality? What kind of interests do they need? And maybe we can flip it and say, who should not do trauma surgery? <laughs> what, what kind of doctor should not set foot in the OR for trauma surgery? Um, I wonder if you can actually say who should not because you'll be surprised of what you're capable of when you're put into a situation and you never know until you're actually tested in such a situation because I've seen a lot of people when I was in medical school that um, all wanted to do surgery at the time that I wanted to be a um, to be a physician you know and they all wanted to do surgery and I was that person that said oh no you're crazy to do surgery there's no um, life there and I flipped, you know, I became the surgeon and they didn't become the surgeons, you know. So I don't think you can really say there's no one really capable of doing it. I must say that you must be really resilient. Um, surgical rage time is tough. You mentioned how they interviewed you for medicine and said, how would you handle being a wife and mother? <laughs> and don't you want to have a family one day? And I loved your answer when you said, well, how does a man do it? Because it's not just one family one member's role to parent children or to have children um so now being a woman in medicine you mentioned there's a resurgence of yeah. women in surgery and it's fantastic to see as a woman in medicine what do you think is the way forward for women in medicine and and how would you answer that question if you were to go back and say to nadia in you know the in the process of getting into medicine how would you change your answer if if at all so um, I don't think I would change it much. I might have more evidence for it because I had read a recent article of evidence-based medicine that uh, theater with a female surgeon has better outcomes. <laughs> so I'm going for the evidence here. Um, I do think what is nice, and this is what I had during my rage time, I was exposed to females that found other females as their competition. Okay. And would not help you they would actually be mean to you because they felt like they were competing with you. Uh -huh. And I had a female role model, um, if I may mention her name, is Dr. Vicky Jennings. She has been my role model since an intern. And she saw the potential in me that I might not have seen at that time. She saw it and she nurtured it. And I must say a lot of where I am is because of her. And I think with having more females, we should be becoming less competitive with each other 
you know, because it's not, oh, we only two females in the circuit, you know, we need to outdo each other so that we can show I'm the better one. Wow. It's no longer about that. It's like a 50-50%. So I think there's more camaraderie, yes. there's more support. It's more like we need each other to get through this. I find that so interesting that having a minority of women in medicine made you more, if I can say it, more backbitey at each yes. other, more competitive and less personable because you were... Because of that, oh, I'm, I'm a woman in medicine and I'm a mon minority and yeah. all of it. Like, you felt that pressure. But now, because there are more women in medicine, you feel, can I say, more free to so. pursue the career? More free and more supported. Because wow. you don't need to, you're not competing with each other. It's more like we're competing with the guys now. That's excellent. No, but I do think it, it is about support. Whether it's females supporting each other or males and females supporting each other, you definitely need it in any Reach time, you know, any time in your career, whether it's internship or comp you definitely need it. It's a team sport because competing against each other at the end of the day affects your mental health. Uh, and if your mental health is affected, you then have poor outcomes for your patients because you are now distracted. So I do think that having that support with each other where we're not constantly competing to say, you know what, I, it's almost like I think the, having the minority of females at that time it's as if they felt threatened that if something went wrong, that their post will be taken away. And that's why they competed so aggressively with each other. That's what I actually saw until I was exposed to a supportive female. And I must say, anyone you come across, whatever their character traits are, use it to your advantage. See what character traits you want to keep for yourself what type of registrar you want to be, what type of consultant you want to be, and see also those traits of people that you don't want. And you try, you need to try really hard to not turn out to be like the people you don't want to be. You know, emulate the good ones, because it gets very, in this stressful work environment, with all these pressures, I know with COVID, I mean, the burnout of doctors have become more um, popular and people are talking about it more than what they used to. Uh, it's very easy to get through that way where you have no empathy because you're burnt out and you're tired and you lose that bit of resilience. Like we need some of that resilience to keep us going and to be good role models. But don't disregard the bad role models because they tell you who you don't want to be and will be constant reminders that you don't want to be like that. This week in South Africa, we celebrated Women's Day and it's a great time to talk about um, issues affecting women, and um, not only those in medicine, but at society at large. Um, for women in medicine, I think it's uh, important that we raise issues such as sexism and such as this competition that you mentioned between ladies. I think sometimes medicine can have bad cultures and good cultures. Um, do you think that the culture that is within surgery at, at the moment is healthy? Is it heading in a good direction, um, and if not, is it, what can we do to change it? Is it something that needs to come from the top down? Uh, is it dependent on the juniors coming in? Because the, the expression is a, what a culture is, a culture mm -hmm. grows. Yeah. And it's so easy to come into a department and think, well, this is the way it is. This is who I need to be yeah. as a surgeon, this, and I'm not going to say anything um, because I don't want to lose my rage <laughs> post. Um, yeah. Um, I think with the equal numbers, 50-50% of females and males, we are headed in the right direction. Uh, we have lots of support programs for females um, to making it a little bit easier on you if you want to have a family, you know, in surgery. 
there are ways to do it. There's lots of opportunities of how you can do that. We've had many females that have had kids, have been pregnant, and they got through rich time. So I do think because we're more there, people are becoming more aware of what females need to get through rich time. It's a little bit different to what males need, you know, not just saying you got, men don't need to be there for their kids, but a little bit different when you're pregnant. Yeah, let's okay? be honest, men are <laughs> yeah. not carrying a human exactly. baby for nine months. So yeah. I think, I mean, before, I, you couldn't really um, fault the people back in the day of how they treated women. They didn't know. Because there weren't very many women there. Men they are trash. Know. That's the reality. <laughs> no, uh, we, we had this that. discussion with Dr. Joe Zamperini, yeah. obstetric medicine, that if men were to carry babies, there would have been <laughs> Cain and Abel and no more. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. They won't stand the pain. They have the lowest threshold for pain. But I think um, now that we are there, um, people are becoming more aware of our needs and what we do need. We don't want to be treated special. You know, we don't want any special things. We just want to be comfortable and have what we need to exactly what they asked me in my interview so that I can be the mother, the wife, and the doctor. Let's say surgeon. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So um, what message would you like to pass on to junior doctors? Uh, maybe some life advice or with the benefit of hindsight and experience. Um, think back to when you were in your clinical years yeah. in, medicine, in medicine or a junior intern. Uh, what would you have said to yourself just to pass on uh, nothing is impossible. Uh, don't let anyone tell you because I was Love told it. you're never going to get into medicine. You shouldn't do surgery. Um, I think take those no's as that's your challenge. That's the competition. You, that's what you compete against. You compete against yourself. You compete against those no's. Wonderful. And is there any uh, resource that somebody can get a hold of that will help them to be a better trauma surgeon one day? If somebody has a burning passion to be a trauma surgeon, what um, would help them? Uh, HLS is the beginning phase for trauma. Like doing that course is amazing. We also, most trauma surgeons are HLS instructors, so you will find us there. You'll see our passion. The trauma books are uh, quite a lot. There's a DSTC book, there's a trauma. That's the name of the textbook. There's so many books available. Like, literally, the best way. So, yes, there's lots of reading to do. But just come and spend some time in our unit and you'll see. That's my next question. <laughs> is that if somebody wanted to do an elective in trauma uh, or they wanted to shadow you for some kind of work experience, uh, mm -hmm. how would people be able to take part in that? How would they reach the departments to... They're more than welcome to at any time. Uh, at Simja, our office, trauma office is in 377, just there. They can come there and they can arrange any, any time to spend some time with us. Wonderful. We are more than welcoming. Love that. So what does the future hold for trauma surgery? Uh, if I was to say in the next 10 years, where do you see trauma surgery heading? Are there new fields of research? Are there new breakthroughs in, in treatment? Uh, there's lots of... Uh, we're heading towards a non-operative management kind of era. There's lots of stuff we are seeing that we can manage non-operatively. And this is with your angioembolization now becoming available, a much better places to observe patients. So there is a, a move towards non-operative management for some stuff. Uh, but there's also still a lot of surgical stuff that as South African trauma surgeons, we have the most experience with your penetrating trauma, mm -hmm. as opposed to globally where blunt trauma is more predominant there. So, I mean, do we have we, statistics on hand of like how many times more we see stabs? And 
So uh, from, I can just tell you our statistics are, we have, it's not something to be proud of, but sure. we have the third highest rate of interpersonal violence. So this is attacking each other, the third highest rate. South Africa or South Charlotte? Africa. South Africa. South wow. Africa has the third highest rate of interpersonal violence. Who's, a, who's ahead of us? <laughs> I know Brazil is quite high up there really? as well. So I mean, we have the third highest. Um, some cities in America, like Chicago, has a high gun rate. But remember, their gun laws are much different to ours. Um, from just purely on, we have, I can, I can just give you some stats. For example, I did my MED, um, just auditing uh, penetrating neck injuries at Barra over a five-year period. Mm. That was my MED. And I found 855 what? Penetrating neck injuries over five years. And when I was doing my literature review, um, I remember reading a study in the UK. In over 10 years, they found 100 patients. Wow. So that's just to put in a little bit of perspective that our numbers are really big, not to be proud of, but yes. it has given us a lot of experience. We always have foreign surgeons coming from anywhere, Sweden, Finland, Germany, Spain, coming to our trauma units to come and learn how we do things and I mean I'm sure if you are in a war you maybe want a South African trauma surgeon next yeah. to you. <laughs> well I mean sometimes the pit at Barra is like a war zone. <laughs> Almost every Saturday yeah so I mean there is a move to I mean the more you see the more you know and it's just about getting our evidence out there so that's my um, little baby that I want is to focus on the research to get our numbers out there so we can show that we actually do know what we're talking about. Wonderful. Now, Dr. Leah, when people meet you and they hear, oh, you're a doctor, and they have a preconceived idea in their mind, perhaps, of what a doctor's like, and then when you tell them you're a trauma surgeon, <laughs> what kind of response do you, do you get? Because sometimes it's glamorized by, by TV programs like ER and Grey's Anatomy, that trauma surgeons, like the <laughs> pinnacle of achievement in medicine, is that, is that what people, how people respond to you? Uh, so number one, not yet a trauma surgeon. Uh, I need to get through that exam first. But um, because I am petite, I think is a nice way to put it, people obviously don't think I'm a surgeon number one. So it's more like disbelief because you're a petite woman. Sure. Disbelief, that's all. It's, it's not about, oh, glamorous, oh, you're a trauma surgeon, you can do anything. It's about, uh, oh, you're a female and you... Some people use the word tiny, which I hate. Um, it's petite. And it's like, oh my God, how can you be a surgeon? Wow. That's, yeah. that's actually so negative. It is. Do you and ever call them out on that? Because that's a terrible attitude to have. It is a terrible attitude to have. I'm like, you know what? Um, I, th I don't need to prove anything. If wow. you have your preconceived ideas, it's okay. Uh, but I'm sure if you get stabbed or something, you'd want to come to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't wish it on anyone. But I it would do be, not wish it on anyone. You'd make them eat humble pie. Saying, you know? Hi, it's me, the petite doctor. You didn't <laughs> it's think It's the petite of. one. Yeah, no. Um, I don't think, I must say, those TV programs, they always have the whitest lab coats and the bluest of blue scrubs. I was, this is why we prefer dark colors, so that you guys don't see the blood on our scrubs. So <laughs> would you say that what you see on TV is not at all an accurate reflection? Definitely not. I try to avoid watching them because when I watch them, I get a little irritated as yes. to, that's not what you do. But yeah, um, it's a little bit glamorized. It's not glamorous, it's hard work. Yeah. It's very hard work. It's uh, very stressful. It's a it's life and death, yes. you know, most of the time with us. How do you find balance? I mean, 
it must be so difficult to have balance and and maintain your studies because you said you're yeah. preparing for an exam but at the same time you're supervising registrars you you're doing calls still 24 hour call. how do you find balance you have to make time i learned this i did not do it as a rage what did you cut out what, um, what do you say no to <laughs> i did not do this as a rage and I learned now. Um, so after I finished my rich time, I was unemployed for about a month while I was waiting for a post. And um, in that month, I didn't actually know who I was. Because if someone asked, who's Nadia? I'd be like, I'm a surgical registrar. I didn't know what I liked, what I didn't like. Because I spent all my time being a surgical registrar, you know? Mm -hmm. And you need to make the time. And you asked me, what did I say no to? And this is the problem. You need to learn to say no. Okay, so, but also be realistic because you have to find the balance of saying no when it comes to you want to get more training and learn more, but also know like, you know what, I am tired. My body needs to rest. I am taking today off. I um, take a detour and I go visit my brother and his three kids. Mm -hmm. And then I realize after a few hours with those three kids that should I rather do a 24-hour trauma call than deal with children because... They are more tiring than a 24-hour trauma call. They never, ever stop. And I think you find those things that just rejuvenate you, whether it's spending time with kids, spending time with a loved one or your family, or just Netflixing and chill. You do what you need to do to get back to what you need to be to, fu to function. But just learn a bit to say no. I love that. <laughs> And um, on that note, I think we're going to come to the end. But I just want to thank you so much for giving us an insight into your journey. It's so wonderful to see you flourishing in your dream <laughs> and in your passion. And it was great to get some of that on the podcast. Um, we look forward to seeing you uh, as a consultant on the rounds. And thank you once again for appearing on the Dr. Coffee podcast. It's my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. If you know of a consultant or senior registrar in a specialty that you would like featured on the Dr. Coffee podcast, please get in touch. The podcast's email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. We're also on Instagram and YouTube with the username at drcoffeeza. If you've got anything else on your mind, such as a request for additional topics, further information on how to engage with our guests, feedback on the show, or anything else, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. The Dr. Coffee Podcast is brand new, with freshly brewed new episodes each week on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please consider sharing this episode with fellow junior doctors and medical students in your world who you think would benefit from the content and enjoy. You can also help by posting a picture of your favorite warming beverage on Instagram with the hashtag HowsItBrew, that's brew with an E-W at the end, and mentioning at DrCoffeeZA. We'll repost every mention to our story. Thank you so much for your support.